I want to tell you a story. It's a story that I have encountered in a couple of different versions, so I'm going to share with you the one that I find most compelling. The story goes like this. There was an elderly couple who lived in the high mountains of Tibet, in the foothills of the Himalayas. This was a farming couple who'd lived their entire lives in a certain valley, and there were two things in their lives that they valued above all else. The first was their only child, a beloved son on whom they depended to do all of the farm work in their twilight years. And the second prized possession was a horse, a mighty stallion who was fitted to pull the plow and assisted their son in doing all of the good work on the farm that um, ensured that they could sustain their livelihood. And they lived in peace and relative contentment. And then one morning, they woke up, the son went out to the stables to begin his farm work and found that the horse had run away. The horse had left, and all of the neighbors, as news circulated through that small village, poured into their yard and lamented with the couple. Oh, what a horrible thing. Your stallion has run away. How will your son work the fields? Surely this is a great tragedy. The son and the father that night were morose, crestfallen. What are we to do? What horrible fortune. But the mother, wizened, said very calmly, maybe we'll see. The father and the son sort of sulked around for the next couple days. They didn't know what to do with their time or their energy. And then all of a sudden, one morning, a figure appeared in the yard, right at the gate. They rushed to the windows and looked out and saw there it was, their stallion had returned, but not alone. The stallion had brought with it a beautiful mare, a wild horse, and the neighbors again rushed into the yard, and this time with loud shouts of joy and jubilation said, what a wonderful thing. Your stallion has returned, and not only that, but has brought back with it this beautiful mare. What a wonderful thing that has come to pass. The son and the father were rejoicing that evening, clinking their glasses of tea together and cheersing, saying, what a wonderful thing has happened to us. And the mother, with a little twinkle in her eye, said, maybe we'll see. The son could not contain his excitement and rose up early the next morning before dawn, went to the stables and brought that mare out and began to fit her for the bridle and for the plow. And as he was working this horse to get her trained, she reared up on her hind legs and came down with both of her forehooves, crushing one of his legs. The son's screams of agony brought all of the villagers running to the yard. And with loud wails, they said, what a horrible thing has befallen this family. Your son is injured. How will he possibly carry on the work of the farm? That night, the son wept. The father wept. What are we to do, they said. The gods have cursed us. And the mother somberly yet resolutely said, maybe. We'll see. A few weeks later, the son is still convalescing. The father's sort of lackadaisically stirring his teacup when all of a sudden 
they hear a sort of rumble in the atmosphere. The mother and father run to the window and they look and see on the horizon what looks like a vast black cloud. They watch as the cloud begins to consolidate and materialize. And finally, they see that what looks like a cloud is the emperor's army marching into the village. And once all the villages are assembled, the general speaks. War has been declared, and I have been sent to gather all of the able-bodied males for conscription in the armed forces. But this young man, with his broken leg, what use would he be with us? Leave him with his family. The father rejoiced. His son was safe there in his household. My wife, aren't you so delighted with me, he exclaimed that evening. And she said, well, yes, it does seem that the gods have smiled on us. But by all now, you all know the line. Maybe we'll see. Friends, life is far more complex and mysterious than we can easily wrap our minds, our hearts around. So often when we meet difficulty or loss in our lives, we interpret it immediately as tragedy. We think that somehow the fates are against us and wonder how any good could possibly come from circumstances that would seem on the surface like devastation. And sometimes it's only in retrospect that we look back and see that even in the midst of our hardship, some possibility was planted. Some little glimmer of hope remains. If only we can stay open, open to possibility and live into that spirit of maybe, of we'll see. Today what I'd like to do is just to take a little bit of time looking at two of our scripture passages to see how the Hebrew scriptures and Jesus' teaching in particular invite us to live into this posture of openness, of maybe, of we'll see, in order to cultivate a little bit more joy, a little bit more contentment, and ultimately a little bit more peace in our life. Our Genesis reading gives us a continuation of the Eden narrative, which we began contemplating last week. And if you think about it in our Judeo-Christian heritage, we often think of this story of Eden, of Adam and Eve eating the apple, of the fall, of the great tragedy that puts this whole sort of mechanism and narrative of salvation history into motion. But Mary preached a beautiful sermon. There she is. Hey, Mary. Um, Preached a beautiful sermon last week that troubled our traditional interpretations of what the fall and its consequences mean for us as Christians, as people of faith. She meditated on the figure of Eve and asked us to look at her eating of the apple, not as a fall from grace, but as a leaping to freedom. That as Adam and Eve make their way east of Eden, past that angel with the flaming sword at the gates, yes, they enter into a life of toil and difficulty, but also of deep meaning, of hardship and suffering, but also joy and ecstasy and feasting and dancing and all the wonderful, rich complexity and mess that we wade through and navigate every day as human beings. As I thought about this story, I've started to contemplate on what it means to remain in Eden. 
When we're given our installment of this story this morning, we see Adam and Eve in this place of shame and fear just after having eaten the apple, just after this fall from grace. And as a quick aside, I'll tell you that theologians actually have a very fancy word to describe this moment in the story right after the fall. The word is post-lapsarian, like post-lapse, after a lapse. So next time you're at a cocktail party and someone is lamenting some new geopolitical crisis that's just hit the news cycle, you can say, yeah, absolutely, that's horrible. And what's even more, I mean, our post-lapsarian condition as human beings only compounds the sense of mess. And some church nerd will think you're incredibly sophisticated and smart. <laughs> So anyway, here Adam and Eve in this moment of post-lapsarian despair. And up until now, their life in the garden has been relatively simple. They spend time tilling the soil every day, tending to the different growing things in the, in the garden. And then they enjoy this wonderful, intimate walk with God every night in the cool of the day. The sun begins to set and God calls out to them, Adam, Eve, where are you? And to me, this is a moment of such heartbreaking poignancy, but also a little bit of humor, I think, on the part of the author. I mean, this is God who created everything that is. He made this man and this woman. Surely in his knowledge, he knows exactly where they are in that garden. And yet he calls out anyway, where are you? My beloved children, where are you? God gives them, I think, the chance to dignify themselves by responding, by living into this new knowledge that they're beginning to, to acquire, even if it means a knowledge of their nakedness. But they're still beautiful in God's eyes, and he clothes them even in the midst of their hardship and their shame and despair. Whenever I used to talk about experiences of suffering with an old mentor of mine, he would always take me back to this story. When I was trying to become a priest living in Austin, Texas, I would meet with a very wise priest named Pittman McGeehee every week. And Pittman had served as the dean of the cathedral in the Diocese of Texas. He'd been, he'd been courted by all sorts of dioceses to be a bishop, but midway through life, he fell in love with the teachings and writings of the psychoanalyst Carl Jung. Carl Jung, some of you may know, was a student of Sigmund Freud's, but he broke with his teacher over the question of religion. And Jung had this wonderful, imaginative, creative way of interpreting our deep stories and myths. And whenever I would talk about suffering or hardship in my life, Pittman would share with me Jung's take on the Eden narrative. And according to Carl Jung, Eden was a version of the womb. The womb is a place of safety and of nurture, of security, but you can't stay in the womb forever. Part of us knows that we need to leave and pursue some new opportunity of adventure. We're hardwired to leave the womb. Did you know that in the labor process, it is the baby, not the mother, that secretes oxytocin? that bonding hormone, which also triggers the labor cycle. It's the infant in the mother's womb that triggers the process of labor 
Because there's something in us, even as infants, that knows we need to make our way out into the world and risk whatever needs to be risked to live a life of deeper meaning and purpose. And I think Jesus intuits something of this aspect of what makes us flourish as human beings as well. And we see it on display in our reading from Mark's gospel for today. Now, this reading from Mark's gospel is one of those like sort of bizarre, bewildering ones where Jesus is like getting a little apocalyptic and a little prophetic. And we don't quite know what he's getting at as contemporary readers or listeners. So I want to give you just a tad bit of context. So just before this passage, Jesus and his disciples have entered the temple in Jerusalem. And these disciples, these students are marveling at these large stones, these edifices, these glowing marble structures. And they say to Jesus, what a miraculous place. And Jesus, in his little sort of like mischievous, subversive, buzzkill mode, says, you see these stones? Not one of these is going to be left on top of the other. And you got to remember the disciples, they're, um, they're rural folk. They come, they're fishermen from a very rural part of Israel. And I sort of imagine them coming to the temple like when my cousin from far west Texas came to visit us in Houston when I was a boy growing up. And I remember his little eight-year-old face pressed against the windshield and just looking up and marveling at those big buildings. Or maybe it's like what most visitors or even we feel when we first come into this valley, when we crest Togedy Pass or our wheels touch down on tarmac and we see the grandeur of the Tetons for the first time. These disciples are in awe. And Jesus says not one stone will be left on to another. And this, friends, would have absolutely floored them. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of the universe for the Jewish people. It was the entire axis of the world. It's where the most important sacrifices were performed each year. It's where all the pilgrims would converge for religious festivals. And Jesus says, it's all going away. And I imagine them like a bit timidly saying, well, master, when will these things come to pass? And then he launches into this discourse where he says, when the, when the desolating sacrilege is set up in a place where it shouldn't be, that's when this will start to come to pass. So let me just tell you what that desolating sacrilege is really quickly. And we're, I'm getting very close to like, I'm, I'm, um, I'm risking getting into some sort of like theological church nerd weeds here. So just stay with me for one second. So the desolating sacrilege was a statue of Zeus, the greatest god in the Greek pantheon that had been set up in the Jewish temple by a Greek colonial ruler some years before that. And so Jesus kind of saw that as the beginning of the end. There's a pagan god here in the house of Yahweh. The writing is on the wall. The temple is going to be destroyed. And sure enough, a few years later, in 70 AD, under the Roman Emperor Titus, the temple does get destroyed. And for any Jew in the first century, that would have been a tragedy impossible to wrap one's heart around. But Jesus, I think, knows that this isn't the end. He wants these disciples to live into that maybe, into that we'll see. Jesus, I think, wonders... What would happen if the temple cult, if Judaism became decentralized as a religion? 
Could it not spread wider over the face of the globe and more and more people embody this new vision of love and liberation for all? There's a beautiful line in one of St. Augustine's writings where he says that God is a circle whose center is everywhere and circumference is nowhere. And I think Jesus wants his people and wants us to, to live into that kind of vision, to be part of that sacred circle, moving across the face of the earth in our lives, embodying more love, more freedom for more people in a more and more inclusive and welcoming way. And as I meditated on Jesus' teaching this week, I was brought to mind of something that I've heard said frequently by one of my favorite living theologians, the Reverend Jimmy Bartz. Our rector has a unique gift of translating complex theological ideas into a very accessible language. And I've heard him speak on the question of suffering a number of times in a way that really compels me and I find resonant. Often, when we feel that something very difficult has happened to us and we want to summon up a little bit of hope, a little bit of faith, we might think, um, we might use the image of God perhaps having a plan for our lives. Having a plan. And I've heard Jimmy respond to people who say that God has a plan in the midst of something very devastating and say that he respectfully disagrees. And I think this is what he means. I think he means that God is not some film director or author who's scripting the story of our lives and who injects a little bit of suffering or hardship or challenge just to help us grow or learn. That God would look at our lives and say, well, maybe a little marital strife here could be helpful. Maybe a little addiction here. Maybe a little mental illness here. That surely will help these individuals flourish into the people they were created to be. Rather, there's no way that we can really explain exactly how this world is put together. If we look at the all of creation, the created world, there's entropy, there's self-interest, there's competition, and we're part of that created order God has made. Things just happen. Suffering just exists in a way that's beyond our control. But what Jimmy says God does is that God looks at the shambles. God looks at shattered dreams. God looks at pain and heartache and takes those, looks at those shards and says, you know what, I can work with this. Whatever the devastation is, whatever seems broken, I can find some way to put it back together. Adam and Eve, you're naked and afraid. Let me sew some clothes together and make sure that you feel protected. In the midst of those moments, when we're feeling heartbroken or like our life is in shambles, in order to allow the Holy Spirit to put things back together, the work that we have to do is to stay open, to continue living into that possibility that there's more happening that we can, than we can understand or intellectually try to analyze with our limited human brains. Which is why I'm so grateful that we're doing this experiment during Lent 
of using this women's lectionary with these non-traditional readings, which we've been saying for the last two weeks. Because here's what we do as human beings when we try to understand God and the mysteries of the world around us. We look at our own lives and try to figure out what's good, and then we sort of extrapolate to imagine what God must be like. So we know that kindness is good, goodness, or charity, or to use another synonym, benevolence. And then we say, well, God must be even more benevolent. God is omnibenevolent. Or we say that knowledge is good, science is good. So God is omniscient, all-knowing. But God is entirely beyond the capacities of our limited human intellects to try to understand or explicate. And surely God has to be beyond gender as well, which are very human constructs. Sometimes I find it very helpful to imagine God as a protective, nurturing, providing father. And sometimes I need a God who's a nurturing, loving, unconditionally loving maternal presence as well. I can remember when my daughter Helen was born two and a half years ago and how, how deeply I wished that my mom could be alive to be there with her, to just lavish on her a little bit of grandmotherly love. And I can remember every morning during my paternity leave, sitting down in my sleep-deprived state and praying morning prayer next to Helen's bassinet. And every time I got to the Lord's Prayer, I would pray, Our Mother, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy queendom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. I needed to access that sense of God's nurturing maternal love. And you know what? My house didn't burst into flames. No lightning bolts fell from heaven. Because here's the thing, y'all. The scriptures and our traditions were made for us, the people of God, and not us for the scriptures or the traditions in some sort of static way. So here this morning, I stand before you as your priest saying, pray to God in whatever way feels comfortable. Think of God in whatever way is most helpful for you. Because I truly believe God cares far less about what we believe than the ways we live our lives. God cares far less about dogma, about getting the beliefs right, than God does about seeing us live into new possibilities of liberation and love for ourselves and for all people. The Holy Spirit is always trying to work in you and through you. And our invitation is to stay open. Stay open to the possibilities of being surprised and that spirit of maybe, that spirit of we'll see, so that God can work in us and through us in more ways than we ever would have known to ask for or imagine. Amen.